second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 14 and 15. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Good morning again. I'm Johnny Christina, the pastor here at Christ Church Vienna. We're continuing to look at what it is to become the people of God. And this morning we're looking at Romans 14, a strange passage that we're going to dig into a little bit. And I want us to think about three things. The issue that's being talked about here in Romans 14, the opportunity that the issue or the problem provides, and the way forward. So let me reread what Michelle just read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14 of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I was in a small group earlier this week looking at this very passage, and one of the guys in the small group said, why is food an issue? This is just strange. And I had to agree with him. It's a foreign or strange concept that they were arguing in the church over whether you could eat meat or not, and it was a big deal. But at the root of it, Paul is concerned with the unity of the church. How in whatever we believe or whatever we do, we can honor God and act in love not in judgmentalness or despising other people as he talks about, especially when we disagree about non-essentials. He calls it opinions or disputable matters. So what's at the root? Well, in Romans 14, the issue is eating meat. It just says some people think it's okay to eat meat and others do not. Now, we also know if you read through parts that we cut out um, that there were other issues. The people that were called weak didn't feel like they could eat meat. They also observed certain holy days or festivals, certain special days. Nearly all the commentators are agreed that these are Jewish Christians in Rome. 
So they were Jewish in their cultural and heritage and background. And they brought with them their Jewish understanding of following God's ways, which included dietary restrictions like don't eat bacon, kosher laws, right? The kosher laws of the Old Testament, as well as certain holy days and festivals, Yom Kippur, Passover, these special days that they were supposed to observe. And they felt like in order to be a true and good Christian, they needed to keep observing these things. And it had to do with unclean dietary laws. And basically it was this. In Rome, just like in any foreign city in that day and age, there was rarely ever meat available. You didn't just go to the grocery store to buy meat. Where meat was bought was in a marketplace just outside of temples. So temples were where people would go and sacrifice animals. And then the meat that was not sacrificed, the parts that were not sacrificed, would be sold in the marketplace. Well, none of the ways that these were done in Rome were kosher. There were certain ways you were to slaughter animals. Certain animals couldn't be near other things. Um, and so the meat in Rome would not have necessarily been kosher. It would not have followed dietary restrictions. So they just avoided meat altogether, doing their Jewish faithfulness. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, and maybe how we can apply it to us today, this, if you know, if you know your Bible well, if you've grown up in churches, spent too much time in vacation Bible school as a little kid, you know that there's another passage that also talks about meat and not eating meat. And it's in 1 Corinthians. So it's one of Paul's other letters that happens earlier. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is also writing about the church having weak and strong people, and it had to do with eating meat. So I'm going to just read these verses, and we'll try to make some sense out of it. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associations with idols, eat food or meat as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So in Rome, it was Jewish Christians who felt like they had to follow certain things and they avoided meat because they couldn't get kosher, clean meat. In Corinth, it was not Jewish Christians, it was Gentile converts who had formerly been pagan idolaters, worshiping the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. And they felt like, well, if meat had been sacrificed to an idol, it still had some of that in it. They, they remembered their former pagan days and felt guilty eating that meat, or they were actually afraid spiritually of the power of the gods behind those idols. So out of guilt or fear. So it was their Gentile and Greek and pagan background that caused them to not eat meat, whereas in Rome, it was their Jewishness, their Old Testament law following that caused them to not eat meat. In both places, Paul says that when you have that sense of, I can't eat this certain thing, it's, he calls it weak, those who are weak. And he's not trying to denigrate them. He's saying they have scruples, people who avoid certain things or add certain rules, things you have to do in order to feel that you're a good Christian. And we all have some scruples. We have things that we add on at times to the gospel to feel like now I know I feel good about myself before God. Paul specifically talks about being weak in your faith. And this is important. Weak in your faith is important because it has to do with the, the Christians who were afraid to eat meat in Rome. They, they were not fully living into all that was theirs in Christ. They were not thinking through the implications of the gospel and the freedoms that they have because of total forgiveness by grace that are everyone's in Christ Jesus. On the opposite side of the weak is the strong. 
Paul himself identifies with those who are strong in faith, which basically meant, he said, like, you can eat meat. You can eat meat if it's sacrificed to an idol or if it's unclean. It's allowed. No food is unclean, as Acts 10 mentions. And the Old Testament requirements of circumcision, dietary laws, holy days, these kind of Jewish boundary markers were no longer uh, necessary to follow. They were unique to Israel and not like the moral law, like do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, which were for every culture at any time. So Paul's talking about the strong and the weak. The strong are applying the gospel a little better. The weak are not applying it fully yet. But Paul's main critique is actually for the strong. He says, yes, you can eat meat, but should you at any given moment? And he says it depends on who you're with. And you need to understand their kind of, their, their issues. And the way that he gets at it is he uses this word that I think we want to, I want us to highlight in, in, verse, um, in verse 1. It's the word opinions. Don't quarrel over opinions is what he says. So that word opinion is literally things that you reason inside of your own head. Self-reasonings. It's what you think and feel on your own. And another way to translate the word opinions is disputable matters. Things that we aren't quite fully sure on, or the way that churches and Christians have talked about it is non-essentials. So he's not talking about don't quarrel over essentials. Essentials in Christianity are what we believe is necessary to believe and the behavior that goes along with it. So what is necessary to believe is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's all of Romans 3 through 8. That Christ was crucified for our sins and raised on the third day. That there is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a creator and a judge. And it's all of what we talk about when we do the creeds. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. These are necessary. These are essentials. You should quarrel over these. And also over certain behavior. The commands of the moral law are essential. The do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. God actually cares about what we do in our bodies and with our lives when it comes to how it, implicate, it re- interacts with other people. He talks about it in the verses right before this. So the creeds and the commands are essential. But non-essentials would be things like denominational differences. The differences between an Anglican and a Catholic and a Presbyterian and a Pentecostal. There might be certain ways of doing church services that are slightly different. These are non-essentials for the most part. There's also personal preferences. If you go into a church, some people have personal preferences literally just based on their personality or their background. You could see it if you walked into a bunch of different churches and how they do music or how you as individuals react to music. So there are people who, they, when they start singing in a church, their hands go up. Other people, their hands barely come out of their pockets ever. Others move to the music. Others clap. Some actually do it on the rhythm of the the song. (laughs) Not here. (laughs) We have our gifts. We have our weaknesses. What's interesting is a lot of this has to do with cultural heritage. You don't realize how much... The culture that you come from, and I don't just mean like your ethnic or national culture, I also mean like your family of origin, or the people you're around. We all bring a cultural heritage, and it also does have to do with ethnicity, geography, language, the language you speak and speak at home. 
your socioeconomic levels. These can influence what are the non-essentials. Sometimes it's hard to discern between an essential and a non-essential. And that's why we need to do it in community when we're trying to work through what matters, what is essential, and what is disputable. But I want us to see, and I want us to dig a little deeper into the cultural differences that we bring to the church. So again, remember this. In 1 Corinthians 8, the, the passage about food sacrificed to idols, what we had was Gentile Christians who were called weak because they were trying to push away from their surrounding pagan culture and the, the stuff they had left, their idol-worshiping past. Whereas in Rome, in Romans 14, we have Jewish Christians who want to bring their heritage, their religious and cultural heritage with them into Christianity. One is trying to push away from their culture, the other is trying to bring their culture into it. And here's what I would say is, all of us, all of us, bring our culture, our preferences, our sensitivities to our Christianity. And that means to the church. And in that sense, we have to be sensitive to everyone but we also have a calling to bring the uniquenesses of the cultures to bear in any given church. Tim Keller summed it up pretty well when he said this, we all need each other, and here's why he said it. He said, every culture needs to be corrected by the gospel somewhere. The Gentiles in 1 Corinthians 8, you can eat meat sacrificed idols. The Jewish Christians in Romans 14, you can eat unclean meat. Every culture needs to be corrected by the gospel somewhere. And every culture has insights into the gospel that people from other cultures can't see as well. Therefore, we need each other. So, we all have cultural differences. And you can have those cultural differences even if you look the same or speak the same language. So, I don't know if you know this, but in England and America, we supposedly both speak the language English. Or, in yeah, I think that's what it's called. Um, but we have very vast differences of culture. They're, they're more different than I realized. I lived there for a couple of years. And here's what I found is, was my observation of the English. They're basically rule followers, and Americans are generally rule breakers. So in England, if you put up a sign and it says, line begins here, the English will queue up. Americans would ignore the sign or tear it down. <laughs> The English are much more polite than Americans. Americans are more direct. The English are indirect. And what we learned while we were there was it was actually rude, and maybe this has changed, but this was 10, 15 years ago. It was rude to ask somebody what they did for work directly. So you don't just say, what do you do? Even though that's probably the second thing out of your mouth if you meet somebody in America. You get their name and you say, oh, what do you do? You did not ask that in England. Well, we had friends that we got together with monthly, Helen and Henry. They had little kids. Our kids were the same age. We had these Sunday lunches that were amazing, three, four hours, hanging out at their house or them at our house. And we did this every month for a year and a half. Loved our time with Helen and Henry, Helen and Hen as we called them. And yet we had no idea, even after a year and a half, even though we tried and tried in every possible side angle to get at it, what Henry actually did. A year and a half, we don't know what he actually did for his job. We all do things differently. One of the clearest examples of that is how we approach time. I had a professor in college. I took a year of Swahili, Chino Laku Nijani. That's all I remember. And the professor was from Tanzania, and he said, you know, in the U.S. versus in Tanzania, the U.S. deals with time with exactness. 
And that means you're very productive, but it diminishes relationships. And the example he gave, he said, if I walked into the market in town or in the city, and I ran across a friend I hadn't seen in years and years, I would talk to him and I would say, you must come to my house for dinner, come to my house for dinner. And I would know sometime in the next month, he would show up at my house with his family. He would not tell me when he was coming, he would just show up. I would stop what I was doing, we would prepare a meal, and we would spend the all day or afternoon and evening together until it was dark. Prioritizing the friendship and the relationship regardless of when he showed up and when he left. I had a similar instance three weeks ago. I ran into a friend I had not seen in over a decade. He was one of my closest friends in high school. And we started talking, and I said, hey, we should get together. So what did we do? I sent him a calendar invite about a specific time, at a specific date, in a specific place. He adjusted it because he had some conflicts with his calendar the day of. And so we met at 1.15 at Corner Kebab up at Tyson's, and we talked and sat for an hour and a half, 90 minutes, that's a long lunch, and then we left. And I'll see him again in 10 or 15 years. We are very on time and precise. You can even see it in America, actually, in the differences of a white church or a black church. So I sang for a semester in a black choir at, in college, and we would go to visit churches um, in Virginia and in North Carolina. And, um, and what I found out was the church service said it was beginning at 10 o'clock, which meant the church service was beginning within the hour of 10 o'clock. And it would begin when everyone was ready for it to begin. And the music would start playing and then they would sing. And singing would end when everyone was done singing. And then the preacher would preach. And preaching in the black church is a community affair. It's actually something we all do together. It's interactive. And, and I learned that there's a way that you talk back and forth to each other that I can't do. And the service ended two hours, two and a half hours later, and nobody left. They, they then went to food together. They ate together downstairs. And it was amazing. Four hours, five hours together. Here, we begin at 10. And we're done. Well, our aim is to be done at 11.20. We're probably going to run a little late, and I always get nervous because I know if the service ends at 11.30, you guys are gone. There's no way you're staying for coffee. 10, 11.30, out. 90 minutes, we're done. It's a difference of cultural backgrounds. We bring it. You know, one of the things I love about being Anglican is that it is a global church. It is a church that is all over the world, and yet there are similarities and commonalities, and yet they are very different. When we lived in England and even visited this summer, what I found is that the Anglican church in England is not generally like you see on the cathedrals, like for a, a state funeral or a wedding. They're actually less formal and less liturgical than Anglican churches in the U.S., the youth minister at a church we visited this summer showed up in swim trunks and Crocs, and he just looked like a mess. And he got up and did some announcements, and it, he, it, it was what he was meaning to wear. In Nigeria, at least in my, I've never been to Nigeria, but I've worshipped in a Nigerian Anglican context about 15 years ago in a church that was um, primarily Nigerian Anglicans in the U.S., and their attire, people's attire going to church was much more formal. And they had this practice in Nigerian Anglican churches 
that, you know how um, in the past we used to pass an offering basket around the church? So we don't do that anymore. COVID sort of got, got away with that. Well, in the Nigerian Anglican church, you have an offertory song and the baskets don't go around you. You come forward. But you don't just walk forward with your money. You dance forward. You dance forward and bring your offering. Should we do it? <laughs> You're like, no, let's use the QR code. It's a lot easier. In Nepal, I got to go to Nepal before COVID years ago now. Um, and there's an Anglican church there. And in many ways, I understood the parts of the service because it was Anglican. But you know what was different? Is because it was a Nepali church. You would enter into a room that had no seats, no pews. It was carpeted, though. Right as you entered, you took your shoes off. Men sat on one side, women on the other side, kids like under five went wherever they went. And you would all sit on the floor to hear the preaching or the prayers, and you would stand to sing. And I know we'd be like, most of us, when we got on the floor, would never get back up again. <laughs> like, I need a chair. And if you were with us this summer, you know, nearly every summer, we use a, a different Anglican liturgy from Kenya, the Kenyan liturgy. And it's a great reminder, because we begin praying for things that Americans don't pray for, like the fish in the lakes, rains for the land and the crops. We remember our ancestors. Americans never remember or acknowledge our ancestors. We're all self-made men and women. But in Kenya, there was an acknowledgement of our ancestors. There's a beauty in this. But we're bringing our culture to bear on anything we do in our Christian faith. And we have to realize that that's a part of it. And that there are differences. Differences culturally, even in the church in the U.S., between a black church, a Korean church, a Latino church, a white church. We all have culture and we bring it. And so if we have English and Spanish speakers here, there's a difference in how we are approaching church. And as I've been learning as well, and I, you know, even talking with Juanes and uh, Jorge and others, like there, there's our differences, just like in England and America or Australia, we all have different cultures. The same is true in Spanish speaking culture. So a Chilean, a Bolivian, a Honduran, we're all going to bring different culture to bear. Here's the thing I'm trying to get at. We see differences and it feels strange or even threatening. But the God of the Bible made us uniquely and calls it very, very good. In Genesis 1, we read that God creates us, makes us in his image. In the image of God, he creates us. And this is a great and powerful beginning of the entire Bible, where it says regardless of whether uh, of your race, or your gender, or your ability, from conception to natural death, every single person is made in the image of God and has infinite value and worth. And that you and I are going to see God reflected in other people differently than we do in ourselves. I've seen that. I've, I've, I experience more of God when I'm with other people. If I'm in a small group with other people, they see things in a passage I don't see. And that's even if they all look like me, come from the same socioeconomic or academic or whatever background. And if you get more diversity, there's even a greater understanding of this God and all his beauty. And so everything that we bring to bear, all these personal things like our race, our language, extroversion or introversion, 
whether you're good at math or good at art. Your age, your gender, your ability, your disability. These are all gifts and ways that we reflect God differently. And the church needs you. And that's the picture of eternity as well. The picture of eternity is this diverse gathering of God's people bringing their culture to bear as a way to worship God. Personal and cultural distinctives are a gift from God because they more fully reveal God as they're together. But it's hard. Here's what I'm going to say. It's hard when you have differences. It's hard personally. It's draining to be with somebody. If you're older, it's, it can be draining to be with somebody who's younger of a different generation or the other way around. It's draining to be with somebody who speaks a different language because you try to cross that, and it's hard. It's draining to be with somebody who comes from a different race and doesn't understand your stuff that you bring. And if a church is going to have any version of not just everyone being the exact same, it's going to cost us control, preferences. We need to adjust some of ourselves. You know, we've been translating into Spanish the services for a couple of months now, and Kayla and Josefa have been doing it. And I, I've learned something that I need to be aware of, which uh, Josefa explained to me, was that it's hard to translate sarcastic jokes. It's like, oh, I need to be aware of that. There are things that if we are going to have a church that has any amount of an awareness of our differences, that you have to constrain some things, and that's hard. But it, this sort of diversity of any sort is also very good. If every person and culture has blind spots, and we all do, but also every culture and person brings unique insights, and you all do. If there's something about you that's going to see parts of the gospel that I won't, or reveal part of God that I can't, I need you. We need each other. We need the difference, and we need to be together. And that calls us to a different type of approach to our differences that Paul is getting at in Romans 14 and 15. In Romans 14, the big idea is here in verses 17 to 19, when he writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace, harmony, and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, we don't live for ourselves or our preferences only. We acknowledge that they're a part of us. But it's calling us to use our freedoms, our strengths, for mutual upbuilding, for the good of others. He specifically says, don't be a stumbling block to somebody else. If you know that something you do is going to be a stumbling block to your brother or sister, then you refrain from it in that moment. doesn't mean you always have to. But in that moment, out of mutual love, you say, okay, I'm going to hold back something that is natural to me, out of love for you, so we can be in relationship. And specifically, he uses this word, uh, a good way to look at it. it, it's this one word that he uses in chapter 14, verse 1. He also repeats it in chapter uh, 15. It's the word welcome. So at the very beginning of the whole section, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Welcome him, welcome. 
Welcome or accept is a very powerful word, actually, that's used here. And our translations, welcome or accept, if you look at a different translation, are just not great translations. Because we hear the word welcome and you say, come on in, you know. And accept, we have a, a lot of modern tolerance acceptance that's really, I'll put up with you, or I'm going to ignore you, but you can do whatever you want. Or some version of acceptance that says, no matter what I do, you have to accept and approve of what I'm doing. But what's being talked about here is that you bring somebody in to be a companion of yours. You're inviting them into your home. One translator put it this way, it's, it's granting access to your heart. That's what the word means. So somebody who is, doesn't agree with you, the weak brother, grant access to your heart. You bring them close to you. So to welcome somebody means you get to know what their areas of weakness are, what their scruples are, what their challenges are, what their cultural difference is. And in order to do that, you need to actually know the person, which means we need to be in relationship with those who are different than us. And that calls us to a generosity of spirit. So it's something that I've been uh, kind of chewing on for a number of years now where I feel like one of the things that, that I grieve over in our culture in America today is that we are so divided and so polarized and so hostile to one another. And as Christians, I think there's a place to hold to what is essential and true while having a spirit of humility and generosity. That the gospel should drive us to a type of humility that doesn't see people that I disagree with as worse than me, even if I disagree with them. We're all sinners in need of a savior. But the gospel, because it fills me up by grace, allows me to be generous with others. I don't need to try to prove myself. I'm not always comparing. I'm fully accepted in Jesus Christ. And that gives me a power, a generosity, to be able to extend to others, to hold back on what I feel like is mine or my right, and to be able to use all my resources, my strengths, my abilities, my faith, my education, my income, anything that's a source of strength or power, and use it for the good of others. And not just feel like I have to protect it for myself. The gospel empowers and enables that. It's specifically what Paul says in verse 7 of Romans 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How has Christ welcomed us? Well, something that I think Paul would be saying to the weak brother is, we are not accepted by God because of our righteousness or religiousness. You're not accepted by God because you avoid eating certain foods or you go to certain church services. You're accepted because of Christ's death on the cross. Paul wrote about this earlier in Romans 3, 23 and 4 and Romans 8, 1, where he said, for it is by, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified and made right by grace as a gift through the redemption or salvation that is in Christ Jesus. And therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are all accepted, not because of any religiousness we do or don't do. Nothing you add to the gospel makes you less or more condemned. It is Christ crucified that says there's no condemnation anymore. You are fully and completely accepted in Jesus Christ. Rest in that. 
In Rome, the strong and the weak had not worked out the implications of this gospel fully. If you're saved by grace, Paul is saying, there's no reason to feel you must keep certain religious rules to be accepted. And if you're saved by grace alone, Paul says to the strong, you have no reason to feel superior to the weak. We're all saved by grace. I've found in my own life the gospel frees me from trying to measure up or compare myself to others or to see others even if they disagree with me as a threat. But the gospel is also the power that animates me to love people despite their weaknesses and failures. Jesus has borne my sin and has welcomed and accepted me. This compels me to want to do the same. Let's pray. God, you have made us all unique. We all come into a space like this with our years of life, our struggles, our joys, our strengths. And each one of us is an image bearer fully of God, a necessary part of the mosaic that you are creating in your church. Give us a spirit of generosity compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are accepted, fully welcomed and accepted in Christ. May we be people who do the same with those who are different. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Remember how Jesus is welcome us?